Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 18 of Sleep Talk, our monthly podcast on all things sleep. This month, we're going to be talking mindfulness. And as usual, I've got Dr. Moira Young with me. Hello. And joining us for this episode as a guest co-host is Dr. Giselle Withers. Welcome, Giselle. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So mindfulness is something that's really topical. It's people hear about it a lot. It's almost like a buzzword and it gets used for so many different things. So one of the things we'll try and tease out is what actually is mindfulness and we'll get the input of our guests, including Giselle's input on that. We'll try and get to maybe what it isn't and what some things that are put out as, you know, quick fix mindfulness and some of the problems with that and try and review some of the evidence for mindfulness, particularly around sleep, but also for other conditions. So what's been happening lately? In the, in the media and around the sleep world, Dave? Well, it's been a little bit quiet a month this month. I've been gearing up to go to Golden Door, and as this goes to air, I'll actually be at Golden Door having quite a nice time on a retreat. <laughs> yes, we often hear about this. <laughs> Move um, on. <laughs> yeah, I actually plan to do a bit of writing, so it will be work. work. It really will be work. But talking to the guests there about sleep, and one of the things actually that I find when I'm there, which is topical for mindfulness, is they teach people or give people exposure at least to other things things like Tai Chi and yoga and meditation and other contemplative strategies. And it really does highlight or one of my messages for the guests is it's not all about the sleep. People are often asking me, I'm so tired. How can I sleep better? Mm. In actual fact, the tiredness is often due to other things, yeah. stress, busyness, yeah. you know, as we've mm. talked Di- about in other diet. episodes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Diet, mm. lack of physical fitness. Mm. So it's a nice place for people to get a bit of orientation around, hey, there's actually lots of different domains to feeling well and not just feeling tired because of lack of sleep. That's right. It's also a big month for mindfulness, which is one of the reasons we've got the topic of mindfulness on uh, this episode. Uh, so there is a movement, Mindfulness in May, that has been going now for a couple of years, a nice way of getting into a daily habit of some mindfulness practice. And as we'll get into a bit later, Dr. Giselle Withers has launched her online mindfulness course, A Mindful Way. And we'll talk about that in a bit more detail, but it's really exciting and we wanted the opportunity to feature that. So what about you, Giselle? What's what's topical or what's been happening lately for you? Yeah, well, as David mentioned, I'm really excited that we've uh, finally launched this course, yes. A Mindful Way to Healthy Sleep. It's been about three years in the making so it's an yeah. enormous relief yes. to have it live now. Labour of love. Yeah <laughs> and uh, there's students going through the course at the moment and so far the feedback's been really good. Oh great. So that's again a relief and a joy to hear. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. so some people have actually finished. Oh, they're still, still working, working through it. Through it's a six-week it. course, oh, course, so it's... they're right in the middle of the moment. Yeah. So we're, we're getting mm. ready to launch the next guided course, which will be in June. Good on you. Congratulations on getting that up. And Thank running. you. And we'll certainly put the dates for your next course and some links in the show notes. I suppose the other thing that's happening is just that there's uh, a seasonal change. Yeah, we talked a bit about the daylight savings recently in recent podcasts. But, you know, the days are certainly getting darker and colder. So the, I think that people notice a change in their in their sleep. Certainly is a general rule for psychology. I know this is psychology for Melbourne and psychology in Melbourne because Melbourne's a sort of one of the southern states, of course, of Australia and it's colder and darker. But you'd agree with this too, Giselle, and it's actually documented somewhere um, that psychologists in Melbourne are much busier between April and October. So as it starts to get darker, April, May onwards, I think it's there is a significant shift in people's mood 
and, mm. and it's it's literally darker. So sometimes darker outside, sometimes darker inside. Harder yeah. to regulate their mood. So I think that's interesting. Just a, a topical thing. Maybe we'll, we'll maybe dedicate a whole podcast to mm. perhaps seasonal affective disorder. Mm-hmm. So so I'm not specifically talking about seasonal affective disorder, but this just seems to be a general trend in people not coping as well. Yeah. So yes. one of the terms it could be you know light sensitive mood changes. Mm. Yeah. You know, so not yes. disorder. Per not a full blown mm. disorder diagnostic criteria met etc i really hear that from clients on the other end as we start moving into the lighter warmer weather again people immediately saying how much it really lifts their mood and how much better they're starting to feel there is a link to to sleep length you know we're creatures of habit and in modern society you know we set our alarm at the same time every day winter summer rock up at the to work at the same time every day but in actual fact if we're living in nature we'd sleep a bit longer in winter and a bit shorter Mm. in summer and you know, often, you know, naturally some people still have that variation, but they don't change their alarms and things. So they just yeah. can find mm-hmm. the mornings a bit slower and a bit more yeah. more sluggish. Well, not everyone has the, the choice, do they, I guess? Absolutely. You know, most of us don't have. Well, in a, in a rational world, society would, you know, start work an hour later in winter as the, yeah. the sun, <laughs> yes. you know, rose a bit later. But yeah, imagine doing that through a, a council <laughs> or, you know, some kind of executive level. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> So one interesting thing that's been happening the last month um, since our podcast on sleep and headaches was that both of us were contacted by a researcher um, at Griffiths University in Brisbane in Australia who's doing his PhD and some really great research in the area of headaches and insomnia and, and sleep, sleep disturbance. And he sent us some papers via, you know, uh, email and that was just it was really really fantastic and I encourage other people listening if you've your particular area of research that you're interested in or we might have touched on and um, we'd love you to send us some of your areas of interest that we could highlight for, for future podcasts. Yeah because we really do want to give researchers the opportunity to have their work highlighted and really be able to tease them out so by all means you know, send us the work that you're doing or something you've recently published and you know we'd love to take a look at it. Yeah, so thanks, Daniel. It was really, really great to hear from you. So the theme for this month's podcast, as we talked about uh, earlier, is mindfulness. And mindfulness, uh, we'll hear some definitions of mindfulness, but it's something that's been used for a range of different conditions, uh, including anxiety, chronic pain, stress management, uh, and increasingly being used in sleep. And all of us that you'll hear from today have been involved in some research on using mindfulness in sleep, and we'll try and give you our perspective uh, around that. Have you found your experience with mindfulness in sleep, Moira? Well, I found it a a fantastic tool. I've been really excited. I've been using it in my practice for a number of years. And it was probably, I remember the exact date when I first heard about it. I might have told this anecdote before, but... It was in 2007 at the World Sleep Congress up in Cannes. I saw this fantastic research study from Rachel Manba, who I didn't I didn't know much about at that point. And she just was talking about this wonderful thing that she'd been doing. And it was with a group of adolescents and they had these wonderful outcomes and she had the data up on the screen. And I remember she talked about the principles of mindfulness, she, what she called mindfulness. I said, what's this stuff? What is this? And she talked, called it mindfulness. And it was, she credited John Kabat-Zinn, who we'll hear a bit more as the podcast goes on. The principles of mindfulness were what she listed up there, and we'll talk about those as well. But when I saw the principles listed, and they are things like patience and trust and letting go and non-striving and non-judgment and beginner's mind and acceptance, I think that's the seven. But what struck me was that like the patients that I work with, that were working with back then, most of them don't do those things very well. 
or very easily and particularly their relationship towards sleep. So they weren't really patient anymore. I mean, they fed up, they've had problems for years or months and letting go and, you know, trying too hard, a range of things that really shifted my focus around. I thought, this is fantastic. So I felt like I had a new thing in my bag of tricks. And since then, of course, about back in that time, there weren't actually, there wasn't a randomized control trial done, but plenty of research per se, but, you know, leading up to a randomized control trial, which was a number of years ago now, I think 2013 or 14 mm. or so with Jason Ong's group. Yes. And I don't know how many more have been done since then. If that's in the sleep world, like insomnia specific, but in general terms, like in anxiety and depression literature, there are a plethora of mm. randomized control trials with mindfulness. So it has unequivocal evidence that it's that it works and that it's a, you know it's effective. And I, I just yeah I think it's been a really novel uh, and yet not novel. It's you know it's based on ancient principles. It's not novel at all, yeah. Yeah. and it's not new insofar as as a lot of talk within the psychology world about traditional CBT and where mindfulness fits with that. Mm. And it's not so much different to what we do anyway in terms of challenging. We don't say that we're challenging cognitions, but we're still we're trying to get people to basically really have a shift with how they how they view mm. things. But it's just different language, really. Around, I'd love we'll talk more about that mm. with Giselle. I'd love to pick Giselle's brain about that. Great, thanks for that insight. So to help kick us off and give us some insights into what is mindfulness from a couple of different perspectives. I had the chance to talk to Dr. Tony Fernando, and you will have heard from Tony before in previous podcast episodes. Tony's a psychiatrist and researcher uh, from University of Auckland. Thanks, Tony. You've certainly got a unique perspective in mindfulness and lots of experience, both professionally and personally, with mindfulness. I wanted to ask you, in your role as a psychiatrist, how would you explain what mindfulness is and how would you use it? Yeah, so as a psychiatrist, I see a lot of people who have mental suffering typically anxiety, depression, substance problems, or insomnia or other sleep problems. And the way I explain mindfulness to them is first talk about a common situation of the mind for most people, which is that the mind is constantly busy, very ruminative, always spinning stories, and that it has a tendency to focus too much on the future, about what will happen, um, I want this, I want that, or things should be different. Or for some of us, we tend to focus a lot on, on the past. Why did I do that? Why did you say that? I'm such an idiot. Um, I don't deserve this. And this type of thinking often leads to a lot of unhappiness. So not living in the moment usually results in a lot of feeling of unhappiness and that life just passes us by. So the way I describe mindfulness to people is that it's a state of learning how to be accepting in a very non-judgmental way our current emotions, our current thoughts, feelings, and sensations, and being aware of the present. And that way of thinking, if that can be developed, often can minimize, if not improve, our suffering. And in terms of what situations I use it for, I use in many situations clinically, so I use it for people who suffer from depression, people from people who have anxiety, people who use substances, even people with psychosis, as well as patients who suffer all sorts of sleep conditions. So I use mindfulness as one of the options to help them. That's really interesting. Thank you, Tony, for that insight. 
So then just from a completely different perspective, as a Buddhist, how do you conceptualize what mindfulness is and how might you use it in day-to-day life? As a Buddhist, it's a little... I use the same definition, but in addition to the conscious awareness of the present and being accepting, non-judgmental. As a Buddhist, I view mindfulness as just one step of the eight steps that the Buddha taught us to liberate us from suffering. So the way I view mindfulness is just one of the eight, and that with mindfulness practice, it opens the heart for compassion and kindness, and not just for stress relief, uh, which is what a lot of people typically want, but that mindfulness will lead us to universal truths of impermanence, interdependence, uh, things which might be a little too much for an average person to realize or to accept. I try to be mindful, not just when I do a mindfulness exercise or a mindfulness meditation sitting or walking. So normally we would recommend people to practice mindfulness initially by doing a sitting practice or a walking practice or a specific mindfulness practice for X number of minutes per day, which is what we call formal meditation practice. And then there's the other aspect of mindfulness practice, which is informal or actually living mindfulness on a day-to-day basis, or if possible, on an hour by hour or minute to minute basis. For me as a Buddhist, I try to live mindfully if I can remember. Um, So this can be in almost any situation during wakefulness, from walking to being with patients, to um, doing shopping, to showering, to driving, to eating. So doing activities in a mindful manner, which means being present, being accepting, um, not wishing for, um, not wanting for the situation to be different. I mean, there's a difference between wanting something different in the future, but in terms of accepting the present, that's that's the attitude that I try to develop. So that's interesting insights from Tony from those different perspectives. What did you make of that, Maura? I love listening to Tony. He's got such an interesting perspective, hasn't he? That being a, a Buddhist, being a psychiatrist, having the having the sort of the the really mainstream medical model and then the the other influences. Although and mindfulness is not meant to have any religious connotations, of course, but it is, you know, embedded in ancient Buddhist principles. So yeah, I found that fascinating. I think that he's uh, a world leader. He's done some fantastic research in mindfulness. He's unrelenting with his research yeah. output. And incredibly thoughtful as mm. well. You know, Tony just always Lovely is guy. so reflective <laughs> yeah. and so clever and I really loved his insights. Yeah, really valuable. Yeah. And as you say, the way mindfulness is practiced and the way we talk about it is really in its secular sort of form. So the way it's been integrated mm. into Western medicine and that's been a really a a sort of a 30-ish year mm. process with lots of uh, research. So to look then at research in mindfulness, I also spoke with Dr. Ali Peters, uh, who's worked with both you and I, Moira, and we mm. helped uh, as part of her research yeah. undertaking her yeah, PhD. As part of her PhD research, Dr. Ali Peters looked at mindfulness as a treatment for insomnia. So Ali, why should mindfulness be a helpful treatment for insomnia? 
So David, originally mindfulness has been used across the board for a range of health issues, autoimmune diseases, migraines, obesity, muscle pain, just to name a few. One of the things that really stands out with the way mindfulness can help with sleep is its impact on stress. So we know that stress is such a pervasive issue in in modern society and it's also an important consideration when reviewing the underpinnings of insomnia as well. Um, It's got the potential to perpetuate and precipitate the condition and also we, we know that higher levels of stress throughout the day make it harder for the parasympathetic nervous system to reach a state where sleep's likely to occur. So taking that into consideration we know that helping people to learn how to reduce that arousal level can help in, in terms of their ability to get into a sleep state. So to test out whether mindfulness works for insomnia, what did you actually do? Uh, so our treatment looked at a replication of a pilot study, which included a combination of mindfulness meditation, sleep restriction, stimulus control and sleep hygiene. Participants attended weekly group sessions for six weeks. In that, learned how to meditate and learned a combination of really helpful behavioural techniques so they can manage their sleep. And you gave them some homework, so it wasn't just come to the sessions. What did they have to do between sessions? They needed to do some things that help train their brain to quieten down. Some of that was some different types of meditation. So they learned, first of all, how to attend to the present moment using a breathing meditation. And they advanced up to to learn how to meditate with their emotions and to be able to manage their emotions really effectively. Yeah, I find that part really hard. And, you know, even at the end of six weeks, if we were running through the group and practising these techniques, it takes a while. That's correct. And and the treatment, it really is aimed to give uh, participants the tools to be able to manage things ongoing. So they may not be at a place where they had intended at the end of the six-week program, but they do have the resources and the tools and the skills and the know-how to be able to continue to improve their sleep and manage the hurdles that might come up day to day. So that's what you did. What did you actually find when you looked at your results? So the results were uh, very promising, uh, particularly on a sleep front. There were a number of different changes that we saw over time. The primary outcome measure was the insomnia severity index and we saw really quite large changes when it came to insomnia severity and they were maintained at the three-month follow-up period as well. There was also reductions in sleep latency, improvements in sleep duration and these were also reflected in the actigraphy results as well. So people were uh, feeling better about their sleep and they were also reflected in the objective recording of their sleep. Yeah, I really like the insomnia severity index or ISI as an outcome measure because it does capture people's distress stress and how much of an impact insomnia is having on them day to day. How do you find that index? Yeah, I agree. I think we could have two people. One one has a six-hour sleep and is distressed about it and would lead them to a high level of insomnia. Another person could be relaxed about it and feel differently about their sleep, and that would reduce their ratings of, uh, of insomnia. So it's really important to note that in, the insomnia severity index is not just about the number of, of hours of sleep but it's also about our feelings towards sleep. And that's been one of my learnings with insomnia research over the last 10 years or so is it's actually we're looking more to change people's relationship with sleep and how they feel about their sleep actually seems to translate to greater benefits than necessarily getting them more minutes of sleep. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. And sometimes people are naturally shorter sleepers. And so just being able to learn some of the principles of mindfulness in order to accept and understand what their body actually needs has led uh, some people to have the same sleep, but to improve the quality of their sleep, to feel less stressed about it, and to also put sleep into the background and enjoy their lives more, which is really, you know, the aim of it, isn't it? So that was sort of what we expected. We hoped to find a reduction in the insomnia severity index and mm-hmm. people's distress. Mm-hmm. What were some of the other things that maybe either were less expected or have really changed the way you practice based on your research? One of the other outcomes that I was hoping to find and and did was um, the reduction in cognitive arousal. So there's a measure of uh, cognitive and physical arousal, which which we saw change over time. And so really that gives us that assurance that, that mindfulness is able to impact on that racing mind, churning over thoughts from out the day that people often report. After doing this research, I was very thankful to have an alternative to cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia, which we know works well. But in my clinical practice, I often see it being a challenge for some people and and it doesn't fit with uh, some people's problem areas. Having the ability to be able to teach some people to slow down has been really helpful. And it's also really interesting to be able to notice that people, once they get involved in mindfulness practice, they often notice that other areas of their life improve. So, um, So it gives me great satisfaction to be able to help people not only with sleep but also with other areas of their life. Congratulations on your research. You did a really great job and on passing your PhD. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that was a great interview with Ellie. David, what were your reflections after doing that interview? Yes, I really liked that sort of reflection about how's it changed our practice, which made me think about that mm. as well. And certainly after participating in all of Ellie's research and going through those groups and doing the program myself, a number of times, it really did change the way I sort of think about what I'm aiming for in insomnia. And it is much more changing people's relationship with sleep, reducing distress, the sort of things that is captured in that insomnia severity index, less about minutes of sleep. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? It was more overall satisfaction and reduction of stress about sleep, stressing about it. And she, Ellie spoke quite accurately and the, the research reflected that people were really better able to get a handle on on their stress or distress they were having around not sleeping. But there, there were changes in minutes of sleep, et cetera, but the most significant stuff was more their attitudes, et cetera. And the quality, I remember sitting around because I was involved with the groups as well, observing quite a few of them, and a lot of the qualitative stuff that might not be captured, just the comments that people were saying, like is mm-hmm. how they use it now in other parts of their life, yeah. not just in this, in, with sleep just in their work stress and another range of other stuff that we're using it for. And again, a, a bit of an emphasis on the principles. I remember yeah. how much they really enjoyed having some gu- a set of guiding principles around, around their mindfulness. I'll throw the question to you. I asked Ali that question and I've sort of alluded to it. So as a practitioner, what did you learn or what changed your practice after participating in that research? Probably what I said earlier from the, from the outset when I was sitting in that auditorium 2007, Just I think just having a very good understanding of teaching the principles of mindfulness because I found that sometimes people vary in their actual practice of what, they, what they're prepared to do or what they're able to do. Mm-hmm. But if they understood the set of principles around it in that mindfulness was around increasing your self-awareness, not so much about, oh, I'm, it's a relaxant, et cetera. Yeah. Even though we did and we found that people were able to manage their stress better, it's a very subtle but important difference that mm-hmm. it's not necessarily meant to be a set of relaxation exercises. Yep. It's quite clearly around increasing your ability to be still, you know, 
on purpose in the present moment without judgment, with an open mind and being able to just sit with that a bit easier. And, and that's what we'll flesh out with Giselle because that's what's not captured in the colouring books that are in the best-selling stands that everyone, oh, yeah, I know mindfulness. I know everyone seems to, it's a buzzword, yeah. it's a catchphrase. In the, in the Ladybird Book of Mindfulness. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's little you know, there's mock books around that and there's, you know, parodies. People think it's really funny almost. It's a, bit, it's a lot of depth that's missed, mm-hmm. I think. And that's why we've got Giselle here today. So it's my great pleasure to formally introduce Dr. Giselle Withers. She said a little hello earlier. Giselle is a clinical psychologist and a, a very good friend and colleague of both of us. And she's got over 20 years experience treating people with mental health and chronic health problems. Giselle has practiced yoga and meditation for over 25 years and recognizing the personal benefits of that. She's really has taken none, she's taken it on herself to undertake further training and become a qualified yoga teacher and a mindfulness teacher. So it's a very unique experience really to have someone who's practicing as a clinical psychologist with all that other amazing qualification and training and and philosophy really behind it as well. So she's a great asset to her clients and to the to the field. Giselle draws on the mindfulness principles in her therapy in her work as a clinical psychologist and as you know as we've talked about she's recently developed this online mindfulness program a mindful way to healthy sleep and we'd love to Welcome, Giselle, and talk further about that. So welcome, Giselle. Thank you. Nice to be here. So tell us a bit about mindfulness for you. So Um, I can talk a little bit about mindfulness in general initially. So um, mindfulness, you've you've mentioned this before, Moi, but but mindfulness is an awareness that comes from paying attention to the present moment with an open and non-judging attitude. So it's letting go of thinking about the past and about the future and bring your focus to the present moment, the here and now, facing life as it is. Unfortunately, this tends not to be the natural state of the adult human mind. Our default mode, if you like, is generally quite a distracted state. So our minds constantly wander off and we plan ahead and we ruminate over problems we're facing or we daydream. I'm sure both of you uh, in your morning routines is quite quite busy getting the, the kids off to school and getting ready for work. Yeah. It's very hard to be mindful in that morning rush yeah. hour. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, when we're driving to work or riding to work, we're already thinking ahead about the day and planning and you barely, you barely notice the journey. So we operate on a kind of automatic pilot mm. where, you know, eating breakfast, brushing our teeth, driving car without really paying any attention to it. There's a, there was a study in 2010, you might have heard about that the Harvard researchers um, asked more than 2,000 volunteers from all over the world to use an iPhone app that randomly asked them across different time points in the day what they were doing and what they were thinking about and how happy they felt. So when the researchers analysed the data, they discovered that nearly 50% of the time people are not focused on what they're doing Mm. and their minds were wandering off and they were thinking of other things. And they also found evidence that the more that people were thinking about something other than what they were doing, they were reported feeling less happy. So they found what the Buddhists have known for two and a half thousand years, that a wandering mind is not a happy mind. Yeah. So the, the wandering mind's our default mode. And to be mindful, we really need to choose to bring our minds back to what we're doing. And that takes effort. And it's not just about being present. It's about that, the attitude that we bring to the moment. So it's about being willing to face the world as it is, you know, remaining open-minded, non-judging, curious and interested about the good and the bad. And it's not 
turning away from something just because we don't like it. Mm-hmm. And this will be relevant as we start talking about people struggling with sleep mm-hmm. and yeah. insomnia. So, you know, we're used to using CBTI for insomnia and I've talked a bit about that. How does mindfulness add to CBT mm-hmm. for insomnia? I think mindfulness adds in uh, a number of different ways, but I'm going I'm to briefly talk about three of them. Mm-hmm. So the first way is that mindfulness really does change your relationship to sleep in a way that's much deeper than CBT. So, and this is where all the principles of mindfulness come into it. They really change the way that we approach any challenge in daily life. So one of the key components of mindfulness is that it teaches us how to be more accepting of the present moment. So we can accept being awake without judging it. And then we have much less of an emotional reaction to it. So we're not creating additional stress to Mm -hmm. the situation. So in CBT, we teach people to, as you said, more change their thoughts and beliefs about sleep. And this is certainly helpful to a degree, but sometimes people are already too distressed about not sleeping that they, like the horse is bolted. Mm, yeah. They, it's very hard, isn't it? Yeah, they just yeah. forget about using yes. these skills. Yeah. In mindfulness training, the idea is to practice during the day so that it becomes really natural to pause before reacting. Yeah, it's a priming sort of agent, isn't it? Yeah. Get them ready for it. Absolutely. Mm. So then at night people can stay calm mm. enough to be able to use their CBT school, tools. Mm. So I think it works on a deeper level. Than CBT. And the other principle of non-striving mm. really adds to CBT. Mm-hmm. So in CBT, we, we talk to people about not trying so hard to sleep, but we don't really give them the tools in yeah. terms yeah. of how to do that. Yeah. So mindfulness meditation is training in the non-doing. So yes. training in non-striving. That's what we practice in a meditation. Being in the moment, not trying to get anywhere or achieve anything and just being with things as they are. So when they discover how to do this in mindfulness practice, they can then translate these skills into letting go of striving for sleep. So all the other principles, accepting that you're awake, non-judging the experience, letting go of trying to control sleep, and then non-striving for sleep. Having the patience just to, just to lie in bed and rest if you're not sleeping. And trust that the body will take care of itself and that sleep will come in its own time. So the the second way that mindfulness adds to sleep, I don't think CBT is particularly good at helping those people with a very overactive mind. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about unhelpful thoughts about sleep. They're thinking about work. They're thinking about other things. monkey mind chatter. Absolutely. And and, uh, they can't switch off their mind. Yeah. So relaxation in CBT helps to some degree, but I think this is where mindfulness really comes to the fore. Mindfulness brings to CBT a new core psychological skill called metacognitive shifting. Mm -hmm. So metacognition is the ability to observe our own thoughts. It's the thinking about thinking. The power of this skill is that when we start observing our thoughts, we're no longer in the thought stream. So we're standing back and watching thoughts go in and out of our mind. So the analogy for this is uh, standing on a platform at a train station and watching the the trains come and go without Mm -hmm. getting on board. In the same way, we watch thoughts come and go without getting on board and getting lost in the thought. So once you start watching thoughts, you realise that you can let them go. So in the middle of the night, when you find yourself thinking about work or a difficult relationship with someone, the metacognitive shifting means that you can let the thoughts go and bring your attention back to the present moment. The third way that mindfulness adds to CBT is it really helps to reduce stress and hyperarousal. So the less stress we are, the better that we sleep. 
And mindfulness does this by building awareness. That's what you mentioned before, Moy. CBT reduces stress through relaxation training and typical stress management skills like, you know, taking breaks and exercising. But mindfulness builds the awareness that's needed to recognize the signs of stress and tension. If people don't remember to check in with themselves, they don't notice the signs of tension, they don't realize they're tired and they need a break. Mindfulness also helps people to recognize the signs of sleepiness. It's time to go to bed. Because often that's a big thing if I just jump in here, Mm. that tired, people use the word tired a lot. They say, I'll go to bed Mm. when I'm tired and I'm... But they haven't, and we talk about sleepiness, and they haven't really necessarily, in the first few, you know, first session at least, sometimes they haven't recognised what sleepiness is for a long, long time. They haven't had that feeling. So the mindfulness training and that self-awareness increases their awareness to even know, Mm -hmm. to help with their CBT adherence about going to bed when you're sleepy and tired and um, rather than just because, you you know, it's 10 o'clock. Yeah, I think Absolutely. I think it's a fantastic tool for really enhancing that yeah. ability to, to even know what sleepiness is. Yes. So as Jason Ong said in his book, A Mindful- Mindfulness-Based Therapy for Insomnia, mindfulness creates the space for sleep to come back. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. So thanks for all that fantastic insight, Giselle. That sounds like it's a lot of work, not something people are going to learn just instantly. Mm. So how can people learn mindfulness or develop skills in mindfulness? And you're right, mindfulness is a skill and it takes effort to learn initially. But once it's mastered, it does become a very natural way of being. So the best analogy for learning mindfulness is that it's like learning a new language. So it takes time to learn. People do often give up learning mindfulness quickly because they feel that they can't do it. So just as you wouldn't expect to be fluent in Spanish in just a (laughs) few weeks, it does take a long time to to practice and you need to practice regularly. And it is best learnt with, you know, a skilled teacher and doing a structured course. So I'd recommend people to do a mindfulness course. (laughs) Without a clear strategy, if you're just listening to CDs or audio recordings, it's it takes a lot longer to learn. And that's often what we see in clients who say, yeah, I tried mindfulness. I, go, I gave that a go. I listened to those things and my mind was still racing and I, and I couldn't focus. Or they say it doesn't work for them. What do, you, yeah. what do you say to someone that says, oh, I tried that and it didn't work? I would say that there could be some misunderstanding about mindfulness. So people often think that the idea is to make their mind go blank, that yep. to, to get rid of thoughts mm. and have this blissful state of zen, totally zen. zen. I would say that's where a teacher can be really useful to help just dispel some of those myths and misunderstandings and to help people to recognise that it's not about making your mind go blank. It's really just about noticing when the mind's wandered off mm-hmm. and to be able to bring your attention back to the present moment, and you might need to do that hundreds of times in a meditation practice, and that, yeah. that's the practice. And it's okay, isn't it? Like yeah. it's still mindful. You still have that awareness that you're going off track. That's right. That's okay. It's not wrong or right. So what are the ways people can access that type of structured program? So first I would absolutely recommend face-to-face group courses. Mm-hmm. I know I've just launched an online course, but that's for people <laughs> who can't access face-to-face group courses on on mindfulness and CBT and insomnia. So group classes, really it's they're widely available now. So you can Google search a local area and look for mindfulness-based course and that might be an eight-week program which could be an MBSR type program or it might be the, a yoga centre offering a mindfulness course. And these ones presumably aren't, they're not flagged as ones for sleep specifically. They're That's just right. it's, it's general. broad and general but they people should have an understanding that it'd be useful 
for all sorts of aspects of the, the struggles they're having, whether it's sleep or other things. But if you'd just like to start with some general training and mm. mindfulness, then, yeah, you could really do any general mindfulness course. I should say as well that a lot of the Buddhist centres do offer mindfulness training as well if you're interested in that kind of spiritual component as well. So there are groups that run at Melbourne Sleep Disorders Centre facilitated by uh, Dr Ali Peters and some by yourself, Giselle. Uh, as well. So if people are looking for a face-to-face group and live in Melbourne, that's one option. But as you said, for people who can't access readily those face-to-face groups or are looking for that specialised mindfulness and sleep or insomnia focus, an online program can be a really good option. So tell us a bit about your program, Giselle. Yeah, that's exactly why I did develop this online course, because we have almost three times the number of people interested in doing the course at the Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre than it can actually able, they're able to attend. Yeah. So, you know, with this course, people can you know, join the course from any location, from anywhere in the world and access high quality training and mindfulness and CBT for insomnia. So there are six modules in the course. They're all delivered completely online through our website, amindfulway.com.au. And students complete one module a week for six weeks. And each module consists of a series of video lessons and practical exercises, which takes about an hour to two hours to complete. Between each module, students are encouraged to develop their skills by practicing mindfulness meditation with some uh, downloadable audio recordings, and they make behavioural changes related to their sleep. So the course is structured in such a way that students are building on skills learned in previous modules. So by the end of the course, people will know what's in causing their insomnia, And they'll know how to reduce or avoid activities that interfere with their sleep. They'll know what their optimal bedtime and get-up time will be. And they'll know how to relax the body, how to quieten the mind and reduce unwanted thinking. And they'll also learn how to cope better with with daytime fatigue and prevent, I guess most importantly, prevent chronic insomnia from developing again in the future. That sounds fantastic, Giselle. Some of the research around online programs shows that staying engaged and getting to the end of learning the skill can be an issue. You know, you, you, you're around that. So what have you built into your program mm. to help people and support people in staying engaged? Yeah, so I've designed the course to be as interactive and as practical as possible. So as people go through the course and they practice their exercises, they'll be able to complete reflective practices through a workbook that I've developed for the course. And I'll also be running a number of live Q&A webinar sessions during the six weeks to allow participants to raise any questions. And we'll also provide them with an opportunity to learn from others' others' experience. Right, yeah, that's really important. Sounds great. So enough talk about mindfulness. Does it run us through an exercise? Give us an experience of what that is actually like. Well, I'm aware that people listening to this podcast are probably multitasking. They might be walking the dog and listening or driving the car or possibly cooking. So I'm going to lead a practice that won't involve closing your eyes because I'd like you to stay aware <laughs> and stay safe through this practice. So I'll chime these meditation bells just to mark the start of the practice. So if you'd like to join in this practice, let's begin by bringing attention to the body. So whether you're standing or walking or sitting, just noticing the sensations under your feet as they contact the ground. And if you're lying down, noticing the sensations of pressure where your body contacts the surface 
upon which you're lying. And just feeling your whole body in this position. Noticing sensations in the hands. And paying attention to the sensations around the face. And noticing the sensation of the breath just flowing through the body. So as you breathe in, really feel the breath as you breathe in. And feel the breath as you breathe out. So you're bringing your full awareness to this moment. And if your eyes are open, just notice the colours, things that you see around you. You might notice sounds around you. So that you bring, again, a full awareness to all your experiences right now. Oh, that was fantastic, Giselle. Thank you. I'm just coming back up to the surface level at which we operate, getting back into the zone. Thank you so much for giving all your insights and, and information and experience. So if people want to know a bit more and want to dig a bit deeper into the whole world of mindfulness, what's available. Dave, you've got some hot tips. Yeah, so there's a whole list of resources that we'll put on the website. There are some posts on the Sleep Hub site specifically about mindfulness. Somewhere I've actually interviewed Giselle and we've talked about mindfulness and how we use it. Um, and by all means, uh, check out some of the other sites. So the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness is a good resource and where a lot of the research has been done showing how mindfulness works. Uh, and a book that we all use called Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn, who's really one of the doyens of this area and the use of mindfulness in Western medicine. And of course, check out A Mindful Way at amindfulway.com.au, Giselle's online course. It's a really fantastic course based on really good research and good evidence and Giselle's extensive experience in this area. So as a guest co-host, Giselle, we're going to pick your brain for a clinical tip. So what's a pearl for clinicians working with people with sleep problems? So I think to be aware that if you're encouraging people to take up some mindfulness meditation practice, people do very quickly give up because they notice that their mind wanders all the time. They're actually often quite alarmed at how many thoughts that they're having during a practice, and that can be quite confronting. Mm -hmm. So I think reassuring clients that this is completely normal and it doesn't mean they're failing at the practice, and the fact that they're aware of their thoughts is actually a really good sign of progress. Great. Thanks very much for that tip. So we'll move on to pick of the month. Moira, what's your pick for this month? So my pick of the month is just a, a local group of researchers at a university in Queensland. I think it was Bond University. And it was published in the International Journal of Psychology and Behavioural Sciences. And they looked at sleep quality and mindfulness as predictors of depression, anxiety and stress. And that was, I just wanted to draw 
the listeners' attention to that and have a look at it. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. I just want to give a shout out really to local research that has been published and just so wonderful for people who aren't necessarily part of the sleep world, but to be looking, knowing that's such an important predictor to look at sleep quality and it's as its predictor of depression, anxiety and stress. And of course, the spoiler alert is that sleep quality is indeed a really important factor, <laughs> Surprise, not surprisingly. <laughs> What about you, Dave? What's your yeah, pick so of the my, month? So mine's also a journal article. We've both gone a bit geeky this month. <laughs> this month boy. So mine's a journal article that was published in Nature Neuroscience called The Neural Correlates of Dreaming. And it's a pretty geeky sort of article about uh, looking at how the brain works during dreaming sleep. But the take-home story is that a group under the supervision of Gilo Tononi, who's a really a doyen of sort of regional sleep and how the brain works during sleep, have found there's a particular part of the brain that operates when we dream and that's independent of REM, non-REM, and can actually be also active when we're awake. So it really helps us better understand that dreaming is not just about REM sleep. You can have non-REM dreams and you can daydream and you can have dream experiences on the border of wake and sleep. So, yeah, really nice to see the neuroscience fitting with some of the philosophy we talked about in an earlier podcast yeah. about different types of dreaming and different types of dream states. Oh, that sounds great. What about you, Giselle? Have you got a, a pick of the month? Staying on topic, if any uh, clinicians are interest, interested in reading and learning more about mindfulness-based therapy for insomnia, then I really recommend getting a copy of Jason Ong's book that he published this year called Mindfulness-Based Th- Therapy for Insomnia. It's an excellent text and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it gets used in universities down the track for in for sleep subjects. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's excellent. Yeah, I agree. Re- really great book. I, even though we had a lot of familiarity with Jason's work, because that's a lot of the protocol that we used, still learnt so much from reading that book. So thanks for all those tips. Coming up in the next few months, things to look out for are the International Sleep Conferences that we've uh, been talking about. So the Sleep 2017 meeting in Boston in early June and the World Sleep Congress in Prague in October, as well as the Australasian Sleep Association's meeting in Auckland Uh, at the end of October. Our next episode will be on June 5th, so look out for that one. And, of course, check out A Mindful Way from our guest host, Dr Giselle Withers. And thanks for joining us, Giselle. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks all for listening. And remember, if you have any suggestions, to email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And particularly if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes or subscribe via any podcast catcher or via the Sleep Talk app. Thanks, everyone. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.